Good morning, this is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia. This just in. President Donald Trump has decided to immediately and rapidly withdraw American soldiers from Syria. 2,000 American operators have been active in this part of northeast Syria for the past seven years. Whether it was a small force of Navy SEALs or of Delta Force, or if we found ourselves with a larger arrangement right now with over 60 American mini-bases spread throughout one-third of that country, the area, which constitutes about 30% of Syria itself, has provided a bulwark against five significant strategic threats to American interests in that region. Number one, the Syrian army itself, which had been on a path of destruction in the last two years, not just fighting ISIS, but also mopping up the last remnants of the Syrian rebellion that began in February of 2011 in Homs, a major Syrian city center, and that had spread to the rest of the country. The Syrian army is backed by five different militias, all that are violent in their intent, messianic in their creation, and destructive in the path in which they are able to reap destruction and disaster any way in which they go. Hezbollah, responsible for hundreds of American deaths, constitutes part of the alliance. The Zabitun, the Afghani militia, Afghani Shiites which, Shiites, which were recruited by Iran to fight in Syria. Pakistani Shiites. The Iraqi Golden Brigade, which is around 60 different division-sized bodies which have been fighting against Sunnis and other minorities in Iraq, also back in the Syrian Arab Army. Probably the most violent of the group is the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps which has sought a way to ship weapons from Tehran, the capital of Iran, through Iraq, into Syria, onto Lebanon, threatening American interests in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. And their air force, the Russian air force operating out of Hamamim Air Force Base. The second issue faced by the Americans in Syria itself are the war crimes and the terrorism being spread by the forces we just mentioned. Ethnic cleansing of dozens of Sunni villages and other minority groups in Syria being replaced by Shia that are being brought in as proxies for the militias themselves. The burning of city, the gazings of civilian populations, the pillaging and raising of entire cities by the Syrian army all stopped in northeast Syria because of the American presence there. The third threat comes from Turkey on its campaign of trying to stamp out any Kurdish opposition to that country, whether it be in the southeast of Turkey or now in the canton of Afrin. Just this week, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey threatened a full-scale invasion of northeast Syria, being controlled by a Kurdish affiliate, monitored by American troops, in order to project his power to the traditional lines of the Ottoman Empire. The fourth threat, which was the understated reason for American intervention in Syria, was that of ISIS, controlling a small amount of territory outside of the Syrian city of Deir al-Zor, 
almost stamped out. And the fifth threat is the presence of the American Middle East project itself almost collapsing now. You can imagine American-monitored, Kurdish-controlled Syria as a pizza wedge going down from the northeast of the Iraqi-Syrian-Turkish border all the way to the Jordanian border. And then the Euphrates River constituting its western border starting from the Turkish-Syrian border meeting Jordan, Syria, and Iraq. The withdrawal of American troops from Kurdish-controlled Syria is essentially a return to the Obama-era policy in the Middle East, of the American policy in the Middle East, of the abandonment of American allies, the giving over to America's enemies of our hard-fought and hard-gained territory, which we were able to control there to promote an American ally. And lastly, an invitation for more aggression against America and its allies in the region by showing that a certain amount of force, a combination of threats and of subversion is enough to remove America from a territory which it doesn't seek to occupy, but should seek to stabilize. What comes next, no one knows. Will the Russians start bombing the Kurds in northeastern Syria? Will Turkey invade? Will there be new land routes for Iranian ammunition, missiles, weaponry, supplies, and fighters coming through Iraq and making their way to the southern Syrian border, proposing a new front in their 40-year-long war against Israel? And what happens to America's allies? This is, in my mind, a repeat of what the first Bush administration did, of what the second Bush administration did, of what the Trump administration did only 14 months ago with its abandonment of our Kurdish allies in Iraq. The United States is giving all of Syria back to the dictator and his allies that began this war seven years ago by suppressing their own civilian population. Now, there's no indication that the U.S. will stop carrying out airstrikes in northeast Syria, but a withdrawal of troops makes it that much more harder to find targets. If we can't stand by our allies who fought with us in the trenches, on the front lines, against these genocidal maniacs, and we just give up what American blood was spilled to gain, then what are we actually doing there in the first place? The stated goal of the American intervention in Syria was, as I said beforehand, to eliminate, or in Obama's words, to degrade, destabilize, and destroy ISIS. ISIS itself is not so much of a fighting force as it is of a draconian ideology going back 1,400 years. The implementation of an archaic version of Sharia law in the areas which it controlled. My problem with this, and I think that many Americans and its allies' problems with this, is, is that we cannot have a foreign policy which gives up when it's convenient because of political expediency. The Kurds have been a 30-year-long American ally in that region. 
since the chemical weapons attacks on Halabja in Iraq by Saddam Hussein and the suppression of the Kurds by Hafez al-Assad, the, pres- the, the, the former president of Syria and father of current president Bashar al-Assad. The bottom line here is, is that the rogues and the murderers and the genocidal maniacs and the dictator of Syria has been able to survive and more than that, win and thrive and declare victory, not just in the two-thirds of Syria, which he had controlled until yesterday, but now in the division of the northeast of that country between American enemy Iran, American thorn in its side Turkey, and the war crimes perpetrating regime of Assad. This is a complete failure of American policy in the Middle East. I hope this decision doesn't go forward. After these messages, Shireen Kadosi. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. My next guest is one of the most well-known and most active Muslim reformers in the United States of America, if not the Western world. She finds herself often writing for the Kadosi Chronicles, an online weblog which brings you the latest in the intra-Muslim battle over the future of their faith. And more so, she finds herself as a unique voice amongst other women advocating for change within her own community. Shireen Kadosi, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, Shireen, can you tell our audience a little bit about the work that you're doing out on the West Coast and how it should affect our listeners here, not just in Philadelphia, but across the rest of the United States? Yeah, absolutely. So, after 9-11, a lot of us realized we don't really know what it means to be Muslim. And for me, that led into abandoning faith, uh, sorry, abandoning law and diving into faith. So, I spent the next seven years really exploring religion and in 2015, I got to a point where I said, okay, I can't sort of be working in a full-time job in marketing and asking these questions. And so I really dove into this. And that's when it got really interesting. 
I got to see how convoluted our faith has become. And from that point, I've really been studying what was Islam's origin story and how can we use what Islam has become to destroy what Islam essentially uh, has become. Now, you're not just working alone. You also have a network of global activists that are also in the trenches with you. Can you tell us a little bit about more of what the general Muslim reform movement is doing in the United States, if not the rest of the world? Yeah, absolutely. So we're all asking this question, the question being that, you know, can we use Islam to destroy what Islam has become? And one of the things that I really saw that's pivotal is in doing this work, we get attacked by Democrats, we get attacked by liberals, uh, sometimes we even get attacked by the conservative right. And we're told we're not allowed to ask these questions. And so when I study Islamic faith, the history, what I realized is we have a really rich heritage of debate. And we can all agree on that. In Muhammad's first 12 years from being peaceful, then to, then to shifting to warring, the first 100 years after his death with the wars within the Arab tribes, and then the three to 700 years after that, these are questions that have been asked from day one, and it is our right and our heritage as Muslims to ask the really, really difficult questions today. And so that's what we do. We ask those questions, we write, we speak, and in the last couple of years, it's been fascinating because we've been connecting in a way that has never really happened. So we're meeting online, we're meeting in person, we're trying to build networks because as you know, at the end of the day, there is no one Muslim organization that can bring everyone together. We're not united in that capacity. We don't have Islamist funding. So what we're doing is privately building those networks so that we can come forward as a more united front. Now, talking about funding, you've been at the forefront of an effort, at least on the West Coast from what I understand, to encourage mainstream American organizations, whether it be corporations uh, and, and their corporate social responsibility efforts, community foundations, and other private entities that are funding American Islamist groups to stop that. How's that going and what does the campaign constitute? Yeah, so it started off with attacking Silicon Valley Community Foundation and a little bit about SVCF. It is the biggest philanthropic branch in the United States. They have assets over $8 billion. And in 2017, we learned that SVCF, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, gave over 300000 to Islamist groups like CARE and Islamic Relief. Now, while these groups like CARE and Islamic Relief pretend to be champions of what it means to be Muslim, they don't represent all of Muslims, and they actually crush moderate Muslim voices. So that if you are not part of the uh, agenda of Islamist organizations, you are essentially crushed or silenced out completely. Fortunately, that entire campaign is involved to the larger Silicon Valley question as well, because people are realizing conservatives are getting censored, our data is not as private as we thought it was, there are a few stories that emerged recently. For example, Twitter's Pakistan blasphemy law. Twitter is implementing Pakistan's blasphemy law on American users. Google is helping crush China's Muslim population of the Uyghurs at 1 to 10 million. Google also helped launch a blasphemy app in Indonesia at the request of the government. Apple CEO Tim Cook is talking about censorship as a moral obligation. The point being is that you cannot crush your way to peace, but that is the philosophy of Silicon Valley. And that is also why they're so well allied with Islamists. So we have to have a sort of get smart campaign. What can the average person do and what should they know so that they're re-empowered in their own lives? Now, you're talking about dissent within your own community where there's people who are trying to silence you. 
uh, uh, Islamists, if you will, or, or other, other Muslims. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and maybe share with us some of your personal experiences of, of attempts to silence your, uh, your outspoken advocacy? You know, every single day is something or the other. It's either it's on social media or it's initially it was pressure within my own family when I first started down this path. At this point, I can't go to Pakistan, for example, because I have essentially an honor killing mandate on my head from my own uncle. This is how intimate it gets. From there, when I started out in the community, because we didn't have the, the sort of numbers we have today, just there wasn't a platform. You just weren't allowed to sit at the table in the way that I had to force myself to have a seat by building my own table. Online, we're constantly mocked or ridiculed. Uh, Rabia Chowdhury, for example, who's a pretty well-known quote-unquote Muslim advocate, literally a couple of days ago said, you know, why do you still have a platform? Essentially, why do we still have a voice? They would prefer that we don't have a voice at all. And they will do whatever it takes. I've had Islamist launch attack campaigns on my Facebook account to get me kicked off. And I had to fight to get that back. I've had care put together a, dry, a social media drive-by video, sort of twisting the messaging of, of my congressional testimony, and then a flood of attacks came from that. I've had stalkers, I've had just the most awful things said about my son, and so this is, this is the lifestyle that essentially becomes part of the norm when you do the work we do. Well, I want to thank you for your courage in speaking out in the face of such adverse circumstances. Now. The way that you are able to deliver your message is contingent on the platforms that you just said were being used to potentially censor you, whether it's Facebook, Twitter implementing some arcane uh, version of a blasphemy law to try to censor individuals in Pakistan. And beyond that, I'm sure that they're providing information to the authorities that might be used in capital crime cases brought against these free speech advocates. But here in the United States, we at least think that we have some modicum of protection under the First Amendment. But this goes out the window when it comes to private corporations. How are you getting to Washington, D.C., reaching out to policymakers? Maybe it's not you yourself, but how can people who are listening right now get involved in your fight for speaking out against these these uh, 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 issues of virtue and vice? I want to sound like I'm a, a Saudi Arabian uh, 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 Wahhabist uh, police <laughs> officer or, uh, or, or, or censorship uh, 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 doctrinaire, but... but how can they become more involved in your struggle and provide you with the valuable allies that I think you deserve in, uh, in, in this fight? It's all about grassroots networks. Uh, end of the day, as we know with all the people who are getting kicked off of social media, is you do not have access to your followers. The only thing, and this is speaking from my marketing background, the only thing you will ever have access to as, as a public figure is your email list and your telephone contacts. And so I encourage everyone to sign up to my email list on my website, muslimreformers.com. From there, what I tell people is get active in your networks, write your op-eds, talk, talk to people that you meet anywhere you meet them. Tell them about the work we're doing because this is essentially about a people-driven sort of campaign. The other bit of it is that we really need the support of organizations like yourself, and we've gotten that. We're so grateful that the Middle East Forum has always championed Muslim rights, Muslim interests, and you guys have given us a platform that I could not have built myself because essentially you can be a voice in the wilderness, but unless someone comes along and raises you up and lets you see further, be heard further, there's only so much you can do. So if there's anybody else out there that can support financially, that can support in terms of their time, skills, resources, networks, whatever it may be, however small you may think it is, it is everything to us. 
So why don't you tell us a little bit about the campaigns that you've been involved with in the past and maybe to give us some good news about ways in which you've been able to influence the public debate here in the United States and some successes that you've been able to have out of, uh, out of the work that you've been doing. So one of the campaigns that I launched in 2017 was the campaign against hate imams. And these are imams that are popping up all over the U.S. They start off by being really verbally abusive towards uh, an interfaith population, specifically Jews. They call for the annihilation of Jews. They say that we will not arrive at the end times until there is this apocalyptic war against Jews. And what's really disturbing is the language they use. It defies the natural order. And so when I've heard that, when I heard hadiths that call for the even the trees and the, the stones turning against Jews, that is that is the most vile abomination of, of the divine order of the world. And so I couldn't stand by that. I went and I built a petition. It got a pretty good amount of traction. We had some congressmen interested. We connected after uh, with a few different groups that were doing like-minded work. Uh, there was a Jewish group in Davis. From there, I was able to connect with a fantastic Democratic African-American woman in San Francisco who's challenging Zaytuna. I was able to connect with a man in San Francisco who accidentally hired a hate imam, fired him, was sued by the set hate imam because he didn't realize he was this person when he hired him. Because it was San Francisco, he lost the, he lost the lawsuit and that's to pay $400,000. So now, after a small sabbatical, he's come back and thinking, okay, what can I do? So he's launching an online digital series of sermons, and no one has to rely on these psychos anymore. And what I've been able to realize in talking to the average person is the average Muslim doesn't want these people in their mosques. And it's not even just the imams, the boards, and the boards control so much of what goes on in the mosque, but they're afraid to say something. They're afraid to put their name out there because of exactly the kind of backlash I was telling you that I get. So I launched a podcast so that these voices can come forward. They can be completely anonymous, but that so that you and the audience, the public, can hear the voices of average, everyday Muslims without these people having to put their entire lives literally on the line. So you're not just active in the intra-Muslim space but you're actively defending the interests of the allies who are supporting you. So I think it's important for our listeners to understand this isn't a one-way street. It's not Shireen Kadosi going out there and acting as a proponent for mainstream Islam, for trying to fight within her own community. When you see a fallacy being presented by someone within your own community, when you see communities of faith under attack by Islamists, you are standing up and saying, I do not just stand for my interests. I stand for everyone who is in one way or another defending what I think is a progressive, and not in a political sense, but in terms of forward thinking, and a, 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 a mainstream liberalization of the way in which I see my faith. And if I see a misdeed being done, I'm going to call them out too. You have to, you have to, because end of the day, it's not just about your your label of Muslim. It's about humanity, and anywhere you see dehumanization, you have to say something about it. Because the other, the other thing that I'm noticing is that if we're only talking about Islam, Islamic interests, every single time, even from a highly secular perspective, which is what I'm seeing with some of the Muslim organizations that are a little too far left, is that you end up becoming another form of fundamentalism where you demand that only your views now whether that is reform or secularism or salafism 
The point being is that when you only can advocate for one point of view, and that is yours, that is a form of fundamentalism. So it's really important for reformers, and I think we're pretty good about this, to make sure that we're challenging dehumanization wherever we see it. And I think that you are finding yourself here with friends at the Middle East Forum, where we provide financial support, we're providing communication support, but also I think there's a certain element of moral support that we're able to bring forward. But it's not just enough for one uh, think tank activist organization to stand by you. And and with this opportunity, I call on everyone who can support Shireen Kadosi's efforts and the efforts of the broader, broader Muslim mainstreaming movement, not just the uh, people who are on the radio. But if you are of means, it's the end of the year right now, people are in the spirit of giving, and I'm asking you to please support the work that Shireen is doing. Now, Shireen, we've got about two minutes left here. What do we have to look forward to in 2019 with some of the work that you're doing, not just in, in this vein, but some of the other allies? I understand that there's a man named Imam Tawidi who, who might be helping you or you might be helping him? No, no, absolutely not. Actually, Imam Tawidi is part of the problem, and the problem being is that so. So I got I got my I got my notes wrong on that. I apologize. Tawidi is someone no, who, who's, need, who's yeah. uh, uh, no, not 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 helping you out so much. But but can no, you tell no. us about some of the usurpers yeah. maybe within your own movement? Well, yeah. Well, actually, I'm really glad you brought up Imam Tawidi because it's a great point. He's getting so much fanfare, and there's reformers like myself and Zudi Jaster, who I'm sure all your listeners know of who do not support Tawidi. Now, the thing being is that we just talked about dehumanization, and here comes Tawidi, classic robe and beard and glasses, and calling himself an imam and setting himself up to be so official, but speaking in the language of utter dehumanization. And so I understand it's really hard to know who's authentic, who's not, but look for the language of dehumanization. If you hear the language of dehumanization, that person is a problem, and Tawidi speaks in that language. You cannot talk about... Uh, faith and and belonging through abject rejection and hate and and, and abysmal uh, dismissiveness towards an entire population group. And that's exactly how he sounds towards Muslims. And so what's really fascinating is that while other folks, other Muslims and myself, will vehemently disagree on a lot, and as we know, there's a lot we disagree on, we do at large agree on Tawidi in that he is more of a charlatan, he doesn't represent the values of reform, and he is really... He's allowed to this platform. I don't want to censor him, but I would love for people to just take him with a pinch, a fat pinch of salt and not believe everything he says. Okay. So, but besides Tawidi, what in 2019 is your top one or two priorities that you think that we should know about and, and how can we support that? Absolutely. So Preventing Violent Extremism is a program I'm launching in 2019, and that looks at the radicalization conveyor belt. So far, we've been focusing on CVE countering violent extremism, and that is when these folks are already on the conveyor belt and they fall off, then we pick them up and say, okay, how can we brush you off and help you rehabilitate and help other people? Wouldn't it be better to catch people before they get on that conveyor belt? So that is a program I'm working on developing right now and launching in 2019 with free workshops, so please message me about that. And also, it ties into the reform movement, because essentially reform is about completely destroying that conveyor belt to begin with. So those are two big things, and for anyone who's interested in more, I would say go to my website, muslimreformers.com, and also my Twitter, at Shereen Kadosi, and if anybody wants to contribute towards me finishing my book in 2019, that would be deeply appreciated, because essentially I want to empower all of us in knowing how to use Islam to fight what Islam has become. And do you find that government and public officials are supporting your efforts? 
that would require them knowing that we exist and that large the government administration, uh, whether it's the last one or this one, doesn't seem to really know that reform exists, which I find interesting because we're, ta we're teaming up with Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of reform, but we've got fantastic reformers at home who should be empowered or at the ve very least known about. All right. And we're going to try to help you out with that. Shireen Kadosi, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Now, just back to the news, which is coming in over the wire regarding Syria and the U.S. withdrawal. They're aiming to do this within the next month. I mean, how are we supposed to be able to prepare America's allies to have the onslaught of Turkey, of Syria, of Iran, of Russia, of Iraq, potentially even other actors that we're not aware of that may came in, come in to bolster their efforts? We're going to have more on this later on in the program. But right now, we're going to go out to a message and then be joined by David Swindle. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. At any given moment, somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone, they're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Philadelphia. We're now joined by a, a longtime friend of mine and a former director of the Islamist Watch program at the Middle East Forum and a current associate with its new project, the Counter-Islamist Grid. 
David Swindle works for Liberty Island Books as an associate editor. David, I'm sure you'll correct me on that if I got the title wrong a little bit later. And he's also a prominent writer on issues dealing with local and domestic Islamism, now specializing in Southern California. David, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. I'm really excited to talk with you. So, David, can you give us just a little bit of a background of what the counter-Islamist grid is and, and how you focus on your geographic area of the country and, and exactly what you're doing on a day-to-day basis to bring listeners like the ones on this broadcast right now the story about what's going on with American Islamism? Absolutely. Well, you know, as you mentioned, uh, I worked for the Islamist Watch program for Millie's Forum for, for some time. And really what we discovered while doing that is that there was a lot of local stories and it was difficult for us to focus on them when there were so many national stories also. So this, this new initiative is really kind of taking uh, the techniques and the focus that we developed on Islamist Watch and now we're applying it at the, at the local context uh, with me focusing on Southern California and we have other people in New York and Florida and Colorado. Um, so what we're doing is we're we're going through and, and looking at all the Muslim organizations, all the mosques, all the prominent local activists and imams, and trying to determine you know who are the the prominent Islamists in the community, uh, who are the Muslim reformers in the community, um, what are they what are different uh, groups engaged with, um, and so we we write articles, uh, we conduct research, we. Uh, liaison with with other activist organizations that may share some of these concerns, and also uh, you know what I'm here to discuss today. We you know it's what we go to events. So um, so speaking I, I speaking just, about yeah. events, you were just at one of the most uh, prominent American Islamist conventions that was held this year, from November 23rd I believe until November 25th. It took place right there in your backyard in California. And some of the material that was offered by Islamists and even their enablers and shills that came out was, was pretty troubling. Can you give us the highlights? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was there from uh, Friday, November 23rd. What, what was the uh, name of the Saturday, organization, just, just to, to tell our listeners? Yeah, sure. It's the Muslim American Society, um, which they may not be familiar with. It's not as, as large and prominent as some other organizations, such as Council on American Islamic Relations, you know, CARE, ICNA, ISNA, uh, but but they really should be cognizant of of, uh, of MAS because it's one of uh, one of two American Muslim organizations that in 2014 was named by the United Arab Emirates as a terrorist group, um, and the real reason for that is is because um, of its associations with the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and so really you know being cognizant of Muslim Brotherhood ideology and and you know. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, engagements right now in the Middle East, uh, you know, a whole lot of what they said on, on the panels was right in line uh, with the Brotherhood. So um, so, so what and, was being and, said this, this weekend that you attended the conference, and, and specifically, uh, why should we be troubled about it? Right, right. Um, the first panel that, that really jumped out at me and, and really struck me um, was a panel called the Black Muslim Imperative, um, and, and this featured. I, I particularly wanted to, to go to this panel because it featured Musamil Siddiqui, who is is very uh, has said a lot of, of, of kind of disturbing things and is engaged in a lot of Muslim organizations. Um, he actually turned out to be one of the more moderate people on the panel. Um, I was really deeply troubled by um, the words of a young Muslim. He, he's uh, in his mid twenties, named Ibn Ali Miller. 
Now, at the previous panels, you know, most of what had been said was theological matters or, or, or cultural things, just, you know, not too extreme. There was a comment here or there, but here he really went uh, off the deep end. Um, in particular with his, with his promotion of, of conspiracy theories and with being really loudly black nationalist in kind of a disturbing way. Um, but it made me sit up in particular when he said, you know, within a minute or two into his speech, so when the government put in crack in our neighborhoods in the 80s, subhanAllah, you know, which means glory to God, that's part of our makeup and who we are today. So I'm proud of that. Um, so he's framing this narrative of it conspiratorial in the United States. And then he says, they started getting all of our parents, all of our homes, all the men in our neighborhoods, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years for $20 in crack cocaine. That's part of who we are. And I'm proud of that. It's not something that I will apologize for. And then he goes on to say, and the reality is that we have always been, we as in black people, always been and always will be the source of economics in America. And he continues on this, making this very you know, strange arguments that things are just as bad today as they are in slavery. He, you know, he says uh, they sold all of us. That, that's one of the things that he kept on doing. It is he talked about uh, about black people as though he was every black person. You know, he would say we as though you know talking about you know when when blacks were sold in slavery hundreds of years ago. So it was a you know directly personal. And directly seeing that as living now and, and and really defining America. And he says, I don't see Nike doing anything different. I don't see Def Jam Records doing anything different. And then this was a really weird. He says, um, I don't see anyone doing anything different. CNN today is producing the same content that it produced when it made Birth of a Nation in 1912. So he, he really articulated this, this really intense critique of, of America today. Um, and I, I really, I would like to, to put it in the context of, of another speaker. Um, but just let's, spoke, let's focus uh, on this speaker sure. for a second. I understand that there is a panoply of different African-Americans in this country who have feelings about the uh, oppression that they faced some 150, 160 years ago, the end of then, and then there was Jim Crow and the civil rights era. And even today, an argument, an argument can be made that African-Americans are discriminated against at a higher proportion than any other minority group in this country. But he's offering this message in the context of an Islamist convention. Now, I don't want to get into the politics of race right now. That's not what this program is about. But how did he frame it in so far as he's coming up there as an American Muslim saying, is this something that is um, symptomatic of the way in which the United States is treating Muslims? Or is this something that's an issue within the African-American Muslim community? I mean, how, how did he really touch on that that would have brought out the Islamist bent in his speech? Um. I think the the real Islamist uh, bent in his in his speech was was the critique of America and and how he framed um, America not as as a, a place for opportunity but as as a place of oppression um, and in particular the American system uh, being corrupt um, and inherently racist. Um, so by you know articulating that degree of critique of the system, then the Islamist system. Uh, is, is then is, is then um, you know a viable alternative. So he's um, so, so what he's doing is is he's taking advantage of racial divisions 
offering a conspiracy to uh, uh, rationalize why these divisions exist. And he says that instead of following the way in which the Western liberal American democratic system offers itself, we have to adopt maybe Sharia or a certain version of Islamist thought. Did he go down that far down the rabbit hole? No, no, he, he, he didn't have that much time. So uh, he, he really, you know, kind of made his, his case for how terrible America is and then kind of transitioned into, um, you know, not being quite as offensive, uh, you know, talking, talking in more general terms. But also, you know, in the big picture context, too, um, in the way that he made his speech, it was very much in the spirit of Malcolm X, uh, who had been spoken throughout the panel, um, and also uh, in the context of the Nation of Islam, um, the previous speaker, or, um, Jihad Safir, had made clear that uh, the nation, the, that Muslims, even if they don't agree with with what the Nation of Islam um, preached, they should uh, they should still recognize it as an important thing and good for bringing in in black Muslim black Americans, you know, into the Muslim uh, community, um, and and that also serves kind of a um, a bigger Muslim Brotherhood thing that was going on throughout the conference, which is that they were trying to articulate that Muslims in America need to be concerned with the Ummah as, as a whole. So there were different panels about different countries and, and different situations. Um, and, and so this, so in framing the black community, uh, black Muslim community um, in this way as well, you know, they're trying to kind of take advantage of the, the oppression that the blacks have in the, have felt in the past and are feeling today and are trying to articulate is that it's basically the same thing that Muslims are, are going through. Um, so, so they're, they're you know, channeling African American resentment towards their status in society right now and taking advantage of it as a recruitment call to support and maybe even join within the nation of Islam. Is that, is that a, yeah. a, a logical leap that you think we can justifiably make here? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's that's a good way to put it. You know, that they, an, an overinflated condemnation of, of America is the problem, and then Islamism is the is the solution. Wow, that that's a clarion call. That's a pretty nefarious way to take advantage of of societal ills to be able to increase your ranks. And I mean, I think that this points to a larger message that the uh, the, the leader of the Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan, is able to use when he's accepted onto a, um, a platform sitting next to two former U.S. president or one former U.S. president, uh, uh, sitting hand by hand next to President Clinton. Jesse Jackson is up there, and he's using oppression as a vehicle to be able to disseminate his violent messaging. And, and it, it's right. fascinating now to see that at a conference that just took place in your backyard, that the same tactics that are happening on a national level are also being emulated on a local level. This is something we definitely have to be concerned about. Now, there was also a keynote speaker the second night, uh, Tariq al-Suadan, who uh, has been known, for at least in his Arabic speeches, for calling for extremist actions. What did he have to say? Uh, well. It, it was interesting in with him because he was actually um, kind of phoning it in from, uh, I think he's in, in Kuwait. And so he was Skyping in, um, meaning it, it was doubly, it was doubly, diff triply difficult to, to understand much of what he was saying. A lot of the speakers, uh, between their accent, between jumping to, uh, you know, singing and, and speaking in Arabic, 
um, and and sometimes you know the, the difficult uh, sound equipment. It was it was difficult to even to hear a lot of the speakers, and and he was one of them too. Um, but in particular, uh, with with him, I, I think what's what's important to to understand is 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 what he has said and what he represents. Um, and and in particular that that he as as oh and the other thing too is is that when he speaks in English he's known for being more moderate. So in his English talk he he did not um, you know articulate the hateful views that he's been known to articulate uh, when he's when he's spoken you know in Arabic. So for example um, he's in 2012 when he spoke on Hamas's Al Quds TV um, he said that Jews control both the money and the media and he said quote we rely upon Allah and then upon our armed resistance obtaining our rights. The most dangerous thing facing the Muslims is not the dictatorship. The absolutely most dangerous thing is the Jews. They are the most dangerous. They are the greatest enemy. So uh, hold on a second. So you're saying like MAS, MAS provided a platform to a known anti-Semite? Known anti-Semite? Known, um, he was listed in 2007 in the Holy Land Foundation as one of the unindicted co-conspirators. In 2013, he was barred from entering Saudi Arabia. And he's a well-known, openly Muslim Brotherhood guy. And this was the, the keynote that, that they had. Um, apparently, he, he makes more than a million dollars a year from his talks um, and, and his shows. So, you know, obviously, he was being very well compensated. Has to be one of the most well compensated speakers to just sit in front of their computer and talk on, on Skype. Well, that, if I can um, learn how to do that yeah. living, but promoting uh, positive content, I think maybe we have a new business model. But, um, you know, yeah. but, but, but going beyond that, let's talk about this platform for extremism that an organization like MAS provides to speakers who may be abroad. But they're basically giving yeah. the same equivalent of an extremist video being put on YouTube, except in live, in real time. And there's no way to be able to uh, to filter that out. Now, he may have said something benign or or, 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 or niceties in English. But right. if I'm going to a conference, I hear a speaker, I like what he has to say, I might go home and, and Google the guy a little bit later. So they're providing not just a, a platform, but a certain amount of, uh, of, of validity and of justification exactly. for going back and then getting more entwined with this guy. And if I go through those YouTube lists or whatever videos he has, I might be able to create a channel if I'm just an ignoramus here and I just went to, to go listen to a guy to say, well, he offered a good message at the conference I went to. Let's see what he has to say otherwise and say, you know what? That guy makes sense with his anti-Semitism, with his extremism mm -hmm. or with his calls to violence. So what's the problem here? about these organizations providing access for extremists to an American market. Right. You know, these groups are build themselves as the voice of the mainstream Muslim, and, and they claim to be sort of presenting the range of views um, that, that are within their community. But when you get into that range of views, it's, it's what I, I, I've already mentioned. It's extreme anti-Americanism. It's conspiracism. Uh, and it's it's anti-Semitism that that is within the, the range of views that, that uh, these Muslim organizations have created for them. That's created for what for the entire Muslim community. And then that's it's really problematic. Now, 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 I think that we just had Shireen Kadosi on the program a, a few minutes ago, and she was oh, talking about her. She, she's great. She's her, she's real brave, courageous. She's facing a lot of criticism, but she still faces it head on. Now, that's the Muslim reformer movement that she's part of. How do we 
as non-Muslims in this country provide a backbone of support for those Muslims who are fighting against extremists? And then parallel to that, how does an organization like the counter-Islamist grid that you're part of provide an ample amount of firepower to counter the narrative of the extremists that we were just talking about? I think a key thing is to simply become educated about the different theological and political strains within Islam and, and within Muslim activists, because there, there is a, a wide variety of, of diversity and, and a wide variety of issues that, that essentially fit together. Um, but I think we need to try and, you know, the way that, that Muslim organizations have, have said, this is the, the range of dialogue, this is the range of, of speakers. Uh, we need to be, we need to argue and, and articulate that well it's much more broader than that um, that it does include these Muslims who have who are going to counter this um, this, this very fundamentalist conspiratorial view um, but but that's that's the main thing in, that I see is is there needs to be a whole lot of education to the point where people stop thinking that Islam is just Islam means one thing when it so obviously doesn't. Islam is, is like Christianity and Judaism, that the, the range of what one Muslim w would believe, you know, like Shireen, versus what um, Suwaiden believes, it's it's just night and day. But right. There, there's no broad brush to be able to yeah. categorize Islam itself. There's different denominations, different schools of thought, different uh, uh, geographic uh, polities and entities that are trying to, to advocate on a state level or on an individual level their own version of Islam. And we have to remind our listeners about that, that when we come on this program and we talk about the status of American, even global Islam today, there are thousands of different derivatives of that wider range of theological thought. And, you know, somebody who says that they have a theophany and they say that they saw the Prophet Muhammad and he came to him in their nighttime dream and it justified a suicide bombing, that's very different than somebody who's saying, I'm a Muslim and I'm doing charity because it's what's called for in the Quran. And, and, and to be able to differentiate between that, I think we're doing ourselves justice. And at the same time, we're also providing a little bit of context to our listeners to educate them about the diversity of opinion that's here. You call out the bad guys, you support good guys, and then there's a very murky middle. But we have to be able to get through that by educating ourselves first. That's exactly right. Well said. David, how can we follow your work on social media? Um, right now, I... I'm, uh, I post on, on my Twitter account at, at Dave Swindle. Um, I'll also be at, at the Counter-Islamist Grid website. Um, still working to nail down where, uh, which publications I'm going to try and be publishing in. Uh, we aim for local publications first, uh, but sometimes that's, that can be a little tricky as obviously the subject matter we write about often isn't the first thing uh, on, on, on editors' list, particularly out here in California. Right. It's, it's, sort of, um, it's sort of inside baseball. But you're also offering yourself as sort of as an, an ambassador against extremism in your community, correct? Yeah. I'm, I'm aiming to meet with different organizations and other activists and, and just educate people about um, this, is, this is the nature of Islamism and, and this is what they do. These are their ideas. These are the most prominent people leading the movement today. David, thanks for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Thanks, Greg. Really appreciate it. If you have a question for our program, you can call in at 1-888-329-3306. 1-888-329-3306. Final thoughts and some answers to listeners' questions after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. 
The forum sees the region, with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction, as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio Philadelphia. What a great program that we just had with Shireen Kadosi and David Swindle. One, the former, a Muslim reformer who's trying to bring change within her community. The second, an activist and a writer who's trying to highlight the more nefarious aims of American Islamism in Southern California. But back to the issue where we didn't really get to address regional politics that much today, which is what's going on with the American withdrawal from Syria that was just announced this morning by the Trump administration. So when we go to Donald Trump's Twitter feed, he has one single sentence statement about this issue, where he says that the goal of the Trump administration in Syria was to defeat ISIS. And that was the only goal that he had had. Now, he says specifically, we have defeated ISIS in Syria, my only reason for being there during the Trump presidency. There are so many things wrong with this statement from the president. I'm usually on his side as regards Middle Eastern policymaking issues. We have disagreements on Qatar, a little bit about his Iraq strategy, getting close to Turkey, and now the biggest disagreement that I have with this president is his desire to withdraw from Syria. Because as he articulated in his own White House national security statement in the end of 2017, the idea for a strategy for the United States in the Middle East wasn't just about defeating the organization ISIS, but it was about combating, in his words, radical Islamist ideology. And as David just pointed out in the last segment, there is not just one version of Islam that we have to be able to look at, or its state sponsors, or the non-state actors that are trying to promote a more radicalized version of it, but we have an entire swath of a new access associated with Syria, with Hezbollah in Lebanon, with Iran in its own country, and with Iraqi Shia that are promoting one version of draconian Shia expansionism from the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Ocean. And then another actor who's going to benefit from this withdrawal of American troops is the Turkish, Sunni, Qatari, Muslim Brotherhood version of Islam. Now, an offset of this might be that the Turks 
and their Axis and the Iranians and their Axis will fight each other, Sunni versus Shia. We've seen this happen over the last 1,400 years, dozens of times. But the concern that I am worried about is that with Russian glue, the Sunni radicals and the Shia radicals are going to band together to try to eliminate the presence, the power, and the proximity that the Kurds have in northeast Syria. And the rollout to that will then be threatening the last American ally in northern regions in the Middle East, which is the three provinces in Iraqi Kurdistan. A U.S. withdrawal is tantamount to surrender to, to, to these two violent axes. And more than that, it's giving Russia an entree into the Middle East to control an entire country's airspace, unlimited access to gas, to oil, to reconstruction rights. And the entire American presence in that country might invite a more dangerous body, state-sponsored versions of ISIS, rather than the non-state actor that wreaked havoc across the Middle East. So we have a chance here going into 2019. The president can reconsider the forced deployment of American assets in the Middle East to maybe bolster Saudi Arabia, put more American troops in Iraq to create new permanent bases and areas that he's now withdrawing from. Or we can have a policy of surrender returning to Obama era doctrine. One where we allow regional hegemons to cancel each other out in favor of America remaining neutral. If I was the president, this is what I would consider in terms of my priorities in Syria and in the greater Middle East. It's not about ISIS. At least it's not about ISIS anymore. It's about projecting American power in that region, not in the spirit of expansionism, but in anchoring our regional interests so we don't have to fight another ISIS organization, so we don't have to go into Iran, so we can project enough power to keep our enemies at bay and occupied in asymmetrical, low-intensity conflict rather than going to another full regional war like we saw in 2003 with the start of the Iraq conflict. Let's not forget, we're still in Afghanistan because there's no strategy. I'm worried about the same thing with Iraq. Thanks for joining us this morning on Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB Talk Radio, 860 AM. Thanks to Delaney Janchek and all of our guests. We'll speak to you next week. Merry Christmas.